You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Hello, Steve Morrison here at CSIS. On February 18th and 19th, I had the pleasure of joining the Munich Security Conference. That was a Friday and Saturday. It was a particularly poignant moment in the looming crisis of Ukraine. What I did while I was there was enlist six friends and prominent figures in the world of health security and global health as well as foreign affairs, to do a mini-series of podcasts. Those include Seth Berkeley, the head of Gavi, Robin Niblett, the head of Chatham House in London, Dr. John Nkengazong, the head of Africa CDC, and soon, we hope, will be the director of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief here in Washington, D.C., Tom Boyke, Council on Foreign Relations, Jeremy Farrar, Welcome Trust, and Richard Hatchett, head of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. I do hope you'll enjoy these. Each of them in their own way offered some great insights into what was happening from Munich in the fields of health security and global health, as well as the broader geopolitical crisis that was building at our door at that time. Thank you. Steve Morrison here in Munich at the Munich Security Conference. It's Saturday, February 19th, and I'm joined by Tom Boyke, a friend and colleague. Tom, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Tom's the director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations, based in Washington, D.C. He's come here and participated in a number of events. We're going to talk about the Munich Security Conference and what we've observed and seen and what messages he's delivered. We're also going to use this as the occasion to talk about some really important work that that I'll describe momentarily that Tom engineered and spearheaded, came out in early February. Let's start with the Munich Security Conference. You and I both were able to join in a number of events. It really shows how much the health security agenda at the Munich Security Conference has matured over the last several years. It's really been a deliberate process here over the last five or six years to do that. There was a main stage event yesterday in the main hall with WHO Director General Tedros and with Bill Gates and with the Canadian and Swedish foreign ministers and with Comfort Eero, the head of the International Crisis Group. There was a town hall with the head of agencies of WTO, UNDP, the World Bank. There was a German, new German minister of economic assistance. Tom and I just came from a round table that involved the South African and German ministers, uh, along with a number of other stalwarts in the global health world, from Gavi, COVAX, ActAid, Johnson & Johnson, CEPI, the major foundations, Welcome Trust and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And there was a high-level dinner that you and I both participated in, which you very expertly presided at. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for making the trip here. And let's start with what did you come here to achieve and what were the key messages that you wanted to deliver? And then wrapped around that, what were the big observations that you made around this agenda? Because the global health agenda, the pandemic preparedness and response agenda, it's a big one. 
it's a bit imperiled. Here we are in Munich. The crisis in Ukraine hangs over absolutely everything. We had today dominated by all sorts of heads of state descending here and our own vice president. We'll talk a bit about the implications of Ukraine, but start with why you're here, what your messages were, and what your main key observations were about the environment. Great. So the main reason I'm here is to keep the conversation about the response to the COVID crisis still on the national security agenda. And to use the attention you described, the fact that we have at least four events devoted to the topic of global health at the Munich Security Conference, to use that attention to bolster that response to the present crisis, but also to help us think about how we can prepare and respond better to the next one. And you've summed up the tension well. I mean, we definitely have people's attention with those messages, but you can feel the shift in the room with the Ukraine crisis looming, with cases falling in many wealthy nations. You can feel that shift to starting to think about other problems and moving away from pandemics. So I think the task for people like you and I are to make use of the policy window we have before that slips away. The newly inaugurated German government is, of course, in the presidency of the G7 this year. It was terrific to have Minister of Health Lauterbach appear at the roundtable today, who was very candid, very forthcoming. Did you get a sense in your conversations and what you observed as to how the Germans are going to use their leadership and to what ends in this period? I mean, expectations are high. They have to manage expectations. They're a new government. Their coalition government has to balance all of that off. And we're in the midst of this crisis. So how would you characterize what you heard about the Germans and their own leadership prospects for the G7? So I think the German position on using the G7 on health matters can be summed up by trying to keep the focus on the current response for COVID-19, but doing so in a way that starts to build and bolster a architecture for future global health response. They don't want to have a conversation where this is just about future pandemic preparedness, but they do seem to want to be good stewards of the pulpit that they have, the agency that they have over the G7, to use the present response to try to create more infrastructure and more more support for what we might do later on. That's where I'd say they are at the present. I was struck by the fact that they didn't make any particularly huge promises, although they're expected to come forward with a couple of commitments that could be quite substantial. They were pretty blunt in defending the position that this is not going away, that this is still a raging pandemic. They seem to be standing up to their own domestic opposition very deliberately and strongly. They seem to be acknowledging also that the domestic politics are running the other direction, that public attention and focus is going somewhere else, not unlike what we see here in the United States. Now, Ukraine... My position has been this is very likely to really swamp things and set us back, and we need to take the long view and be realistic, but figure out how to circumnavigate and not be crushed by this. I also have made the argument, and I want to get your thoughts on this, that while the comparison to early naught decade may not be completely apt, nonetheless, we need to be hopeful or optimistic by saying, look, after 9-11, in the roll-up to the invasion of Iraq, 
You saw the launch of Gavi. You saw the launch of the Global Fund to fight HIV, TB, malaria. You saw the launch of the President's Emergency Plan on AIDS Relief, all in quick order. This was a transformative moment. Now, I raised that because I, I think people will be despondent. If this war in Ukraine does launch and launches on a scale that many people are predicting, could be massive, it will make the Balkan Wars look very quaint by comparison. It's not going to be a short war, and it's not going to be one that's confined to the territory of Ukraine. So tell me your thoughts, Tom, on the implications of Ukraine, but also, can we draw any comparisons? Is there an angle at which we can say, well, you know, these kinds of crises sometimes stir people to new heights on initiatives of exactly the kind that we're talking about here? A couple of things to say. First, I completely agree with you on Ukraine. This is a profoundly dangerous situation because we are not dealing merely with an issue of proxies and a conflict that has some natural walls to it, ways of containing it from spreading to other areas and other issues in the way that the Balkans conflict had. The risk of this spiraling out of control is real. And I think that will give it a level of focus that it rightly deserves, but really consume the attention of policymakers even more so than those past regional conflicts like the Balkans conflict. Do you think that this is one of the major factors in why the president, President Biden, and the White House have not announced any date on the second summit, which is supposed to happen by the end of March? No, I don't. I think they have not announced a date on the summit because I don't think they've entirely settled how to adjust their plans for the shift in the realities around the pandemic and what they want to do with it. I think that dynamic would exist heading into a midterm election independent of Ukraine. So in other words, they're not sure what they have in their pocket to bring to the table because they're stuck in budget processes unresolved and they've run out of money. And they're not sure what they can get from their partners to the table. And the president and some of the men and women around the president are asking some tough questions about what's the point. I think all three of those things are true. I don't think they know what they can get from the budget process or what they want to get or how much political capital to expend on getting it. I don't think they're certain in what they can expect from their partners. And fundamentally, and this really needs in some ways to, to be the first order message, I don't think they know what they want. I don't think they know really what they want to prioritize given the emergence of the Omicron variant and the way that has shifted the dynamic, um, the delays we've seen around vaccination and the fact that some of them are not just on the supply side anymore, but also on the demand side. I don't think they have entirely worked through what that means for the White House's position of what's most important to it heading into that summit. And until they decide that, they want to stay engaged, they're having the conversations. It's not that people don't care, it's just they don't have a firm plan. And I think it will be difficult to set a date, mobilize everybody there without really a firm set of priorities and how they've changed from when they last had their summit months ago. And the advancing Ukraine crisis just puts a hold. Absolutely. On a situation that, as you point out, where people are struggling to get the answers that they need. Okay, so back to this question, right? I mean, wars 
tend to concentrate power. This one has certainly brought this administration forward in a much more confident, deliberate, and focused fashion. People have stopped talking about the hangover effect of Afghanistan, and they're talking about the degree to which the U.S. is showing pretty strong leadership in Europe, in NATO, and the like. We know after 9-11 that the president wound up with very concentrated authority over Congress and with the American people and was able to act deliberately on a number of initiatives, right, in that period. I'm not suggesting exactly the same thing holds here. So I wanted to get your thoughts. In your mind, is there the possibility of a silver lining to a geopolitical crisis, to a massive war breaking out in Ukraine where the president might choose to have a companion program of expanded engagement on pandemic preparedness because that's a good thing to do to build alliances in the midst of this. I love the PEPFAR analogy, not because I think it holds in this particular instance, but I think it elucidates some very important aspects of the present situation in thinking about what the silver lining might be. And I think it'll be more limited than it was around PEPFAR. So you mentioned what was happening domestically after 9-11 and the concentration of authority in the executive and the agency that gave the president to do a number of things, including in 2003 at the State of the Union launching PEPFAR. Really, 9-11 marked a turning point in the post-war ascendancy that the U.S. had globally. And it was really able to seize the pole position really on driving global health and was able to drive that given in part both the, the resources the U.S. had, but its role in the world. Two decades, the world looks very different than it looked in 2003. So that's one difference. And of course, PEPFAR fundamentally is a aid program. It is about investing and helping address the health needs of others in a small subset of countries with a very particular intervention, which does not require shifts in governance. What we have around pandemic preparedness and response is really different. It's a collective action problem. We can't do this on our own. We need to do it in cooperation with others. The U.S. no longer has the same authority it had in 2003 in marshalling that collective action. And it is not just a discrete intervention. We need to deliver in countries. We need to build systems. We need to build an enabling environment for countries to exercise governance and be ready to respond to a crisis. We need to surveillance and, and data and to provide those tools. It's not about delivering a particular medical intervention. And all of that makes this quite different. I think, from that moment. But again, a really instructive analogy because I think it helps draw that out. Can I just ask you, just to push back a little bit, I mean, you could imagine, and some of this is already happening within the administration, you can imagine a point of view that says, okay, the rest of the world, the wealthy world, most powerful world, is still self-absorbed with their own crisis. And their own publics are turning away, as they are in the United States, to seeing this as out of the emergency and into something else. And they're exhausted frustrated, angry, they want to move on. So it's a harder sell across the board to a public in that mood. But nonetheless, if the United States has 10 to 20 billion per year coming forward and they have predictability and reliability in doing that, the U.S. can, can package up a priority set of countries, a priority set of interventions, 
They can pull in partner institutions to do this with them, including the country institutions themselves, but as well, all of the various multilateral and other institutions that are out there. And they could have high impact in 30 to 40 countries, it seems to me, with a package of 10 to 20 billion a year. It seems to me that that's not inconceivable. So it's not um, that they can do that. I think what is a harder sell for me is that that will work in preparing us for future pandemics. Because at the end of the day, it is really going to be about shifting how we approach this problem in global health, where it becomes about our own safety needs and not just addressing the health needs of others. And what I mean by that is if you don't have self-interest involved in all the parties, if you don't have reciprocity, if you don't have skin in the game from the countries themselves, and you don't have the supportive environments that can scale up that infrastructure, it will just simply disappear after that funding. And I fear in the US that we don't have political support to spend 15 to $20 billion on the health needs of others. That gets only exercised in a crisis. It's one thing when you're talking in Capitol Hill about the AIDS orphans you've prevented or the families you've saved with X number of antiretroviral treatments that you've delivered around the world. It's another when you talk about creating systems that may work in a future crisis that may happen at some time. And we need governments to work together on creating this infrastructure. And it really needs a different paradigm. And it creates a need for a leadership to build that security architecture. And I just want, and what we're here, both you and I are here to do, are to push governments to start to think that way and to start to do that and to shift out of thinking of this as just simply a problem of development aid and a problem of commodities. And to do that, we need some high-level political attention and some real thinking going on among policymakers. Where the Ukraine crisis hurts us is that is going to become a scarcer and scarcer commodity. The one silver lining, because this is probably depressing all your listeners, you know, one conversation that has been had in the Biden administration is the need to marshal together like-minded democracies, a small coalition of countries super friends of some sort, to start to work together on responding to global crises. I could see the Ukraine crisis helping with that, where the U.S., particularly after the last administration, I think a lot of our traditional allies are frankly wary of the U.S. We still haven't won back that level of trust. I do think through this crisis, being there, being willing to work with others in the way we act as a country in this crisis can start to build that coalition. You could imagine in a worsening war setting in Ukraine and with the hardening of a world into a sort of zone of Russia and China and this coalition that you're referencing, you could imagine thinking migrating towards what are the things that matter to these countries that we want to be closer allies, closer and better allies to us. You could imagine that argument and you could imagine the global health security fitting into that pretty well. You could also imagine a scenario in which, as many are predicting, we have another round of variants that put us into a reconsideration 
of the mutation patterns and what they might mean in terms of heightened virulence, greater speed and evasion, and what that may mean. And that may then reignite the notion of shared fear, shared threat, and the like. Well, I hope you've had a good time here. It was great that you made it here to Munich. Let's shift to a discussion of some work that you spearheaded, which saw the light of day around February 2nd. This is work that you did in partnership with IHME, Institute of Health Metrics Evaluation, Chris Murray's outfit, University of Washington, Seattle, published in The Lancet. Looking at pandemic preparedness, looking at capacities before the advent of COVID, looking at performance across 177 countries, trying to look at outcomes and trying to come up with some root factors that are explanatory in a convincing way. I think I've captured what you've tried to do. Congratulations to you. It got enormous attention. It worked its way into a number of powerful and compelling op-eds fairly quickly. And that's great. Some of the factors that you put your finger on, which I'm not going to steal the wind, were very important ones to spotlight. So over to you. Tell us about the study. Tell us how and why you chose to do this and then where it goes from there. So thank you. It's kind of you to ask. The how and the why is as follows. So the pandemic is, of course, far from over. Good data is still sparse in many parts of the world. But planning for the next pandemic has already begun. And in order to have that conversation about where we should invest in the next pandemic, we need to have some sense, based on the best available data that we have now, on why some countries have performed better than others in this pandemic. And the way we approach that problem is to look at the, the cards countries held before the, the hand began. So the political factors, the economic factors, the social factors, that context for countries prior to January 1, 2020, which is our start of our study period, all the way through September 30th of 2021, we looked at both infections and we looked at infection fatality ratio. So the number of people who, who were infected that perished. We looked at two periods. We looked at the first 10 months of the pandemic, which is pre-vaccine and pre-known effects of variants, and then the cumulative period, the whole 21-month study period. We looked at all the factors that people have talked about as potentially making a difference. So we looked at democracy. We looked at populism. We looked at economic inequality. We, we looked at all the major pandemic preparedness metrics. We looked at healthcare capacity metrics, universal health coverage. We looked at number of hospital beds. We looked at a measure of healthcare access and quality. And we found no statistically significant correlation between any of those factors and how countries did on infections. And we found no connection between any of those factors and how countries did on infection fatality ratio. So infections are good for getting a sense of prevention. Infection fatality ratio is good for getting a sense of treatment. That's why we separated them out. No connection. What did we find? On the infection side, the factors that had a strong association with how countries performed, the differences we see between countries and how they performed in this pandemic were twofold. One was trust in government, as measured in uh, long-running standardized surveys. We use Gallup and World Value Survey, and trust that people have in one another in a community. 
Trust that others will do the right thing most of the time. And the effect, frankly, was large. So to give some sense of that, we looked at what would happen if the world was at the 75th percentile. So on government trust, if everybody had the level of government trust of Denmark, what difference would it make? And that would shift down the number of global infections in our study period, 21 months. That would shift it down by 13%. If you add interpersonal trust, so the trust we have in one another is again at the 75th percentile, which is like a country like South Korea, it actually cuts it by 40%, which for the study period is 440 million infections. Now, I should say here, the data that we use for these estimates of infection, infection fatality rate, are subjects of their own paper that's been released in The Lancet, big studies also by HME, peer-reviewed, and I urge you to take a look at those as well. On the infection fatality side, many of the factors that made a difference aren't in government's control. So age explains almost half of the variation we see in infection fatality around the world. Obesity, another 12%. Obesity is really the largest factor on the fatality side that we would consider policy amenable, something that policymakers can do. Many of the other factors that make a contribution there, like age structure, population density, or those sorts of things, governments really can't do very much to control. But obesity, they potentially can. And that's something to take a look at. Translate this into how this should shape thinking by policymakers looking into the future. I know you didn't go into this thinking that you were attempting to illuminate this for that purpose necessarily, but what's the answer to the so what question from the standpoint of policymaking in your view? So I think there are three messages I would take away for policymaking. Mm -hmm. There's a short-term agenda on trust, there's a long-term agenda on trust, and there's a word of caution about the heavy kinds of investments people are talking about on the capacity side. So the short-term agenda on trust is we need to function recognizing that in low trust environments, which includes, for instance, the United States, we need to adopt the kinds of targeted community engagement and communication strategies that have worked in other low trust environments. So people asked me in the study, was I surprised by the results on trust? Not at all. To me, this was the lesson of the Ebola epidemic, where the response was going not well, and then they recalibrated. Local ministries working with international NGOs, local community leaders, local youth leaders, imams, really did the hard work to start to build trust in the population and in that government response, and it worked. And if it seems perverse to you to compare a country like the United States or the United Kingdom to Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, you should know that they actually have higher levels of trust in government than we have, for instance, in the United States. This should not have been a surprise to governments. The CDC, in its inaugural pandemic preparedness plan for influenza in 20, 2006, acknowledged the low trust environment we have in the U.S. and described having community-specific, targeted, consistent communication of risk and vulnerability to those populations were of utmost importance. And it is something we've really struggled with. And that short-term agenda on trust, I think, will be very important. 
On the long-term agenda, what I can tell you is that trust is correlated, particularly interpersonal trust, which had the biggest effect in our study, is with economic inequality and corruption. And it is not surprising that people that feel economically, socially, politically marginalized are less trusting in others. And that is a longer term societal project to address and an important one. There's a lot of conversations about we should invest in different pandemic preparedness metrics and we should invest in healthcare capacity metrics because our safety depends on it. There are two points to be made here. Those measures, to be fair, were not meant to be predictive of outcomes. They're benchmarking measures, and we should take that into account. That said, some of those measures, many countries around the world rank quite lowly on them and still perform very well in this pandemic. And I think we should have a level of caution of investing in those, that kind of capacity in isolation of addressing the other factors that can make a government and a population ready to use them. If we really think those investments are going to keep us safe in isolation, this pandemic should really abuse us of that notion. We had decayed trust and confidence pre-pandemic in our society, many other societies, right? And there are multiple factors. You've put your finger on a number of them structural factors that accounted for that. The period of the pandemic has been one that drove that erosion of trust and confidence deeper and deeper and deeper as our own politics and leadership and our own political culture kind of took over. When you look at this, this what was a serious structural problem was driven to the extremes by bad political choices, by accelerated politicization and polarization in the midst of this five-alarm fire, and that dug us deeper and deeper and deeper into this distrust hole. How do we get out of that? That's one of the things, unwinding what's happened within our political culture and that of many other places. Unwinding that seems to me over the long term a huge challenge. I mean, as a matter of policy, this is something that it seems stretches beyond the reset we saw in Liberia, which was terror descends upon a community, sudden terror, and people have no idea what this is all about, and they become highly divided. They come back, they reset with the community leaders and trusted messengers and the like, and things begin to get better as solutions are brought forward. We've got the solutions in the United States that are being rejected by a fifth to a third of the population, and the defiance and rigidity of those opinions don't seem to be relaxing much at all. What are your thoughts on that? So really great question. Three points to make here. One is to just take for a moment a U.S.-focused angle to this conversation. The U.S. is completely anomalous on trust globally. In most countries, both government trust and interpersonal trust, so again, trust in others, vacillate within a stable average. It's almost cultural over years. So these are surveys conducted since the 1950s. And in most countries, the results are fairly stable, even though it's different survey populations all the time, again, with different people answering the questionnaire. The U.S., however, has declined precipitously on both measures. So the U.S. pre-Watergate had fairly high government trust. 
As recently as two decades ago, the U.S. had high levels of interpersonal trust, and it has dropped like a stone. Trust in the U.S. is partisan. Your trust in the government depends on whether you share a party with the president. So it has become more tribal. And it's important to recognize that, you know, while there are measures, uh, generalized measures of trust in government, people trust in different agencies at different levels. And this is where what has happened in this pandemic has been interesting. So there have been a couple of studies done on the U.S., one by the University of Oklahoma, another by Harvard Public Health School. Trust in the CDC has declined significantly, not nearly as much as trust in state governors in the U.S., which the floor has dropped out of in a health crisis. What has retained a level of trust? Frontline health workers, your personal physician, your local hospital. And having the same kind of very localized community engagement may provide some way forward in the pandemic in, in the U.S. And this gets to the fix. Again, I think people really need to separate out the long-term fix to the precipitous drop of distrust in U.S. society and how we function in a low-trust environment in a crisis. We can do this. There are playbooks. Lots of research has been developed in crisis after crisis about how you function in a low-trust environment. We simply did not follow any of that in the present crisis. I mean, you see some of the tweets by the former president. You see some of the statements. We've completely shifted off that playbook. The last thing I will say on the long-term project that I find very interesting is Pew did a survey recently of U.S. citizens. And what is remarkable about it is that 84% of Americans believe we can fix the government trust problem in this country. An even higher percentage think we can rebuild trust interpersonally. People widely recognize it's a problem. It's not like they're oblivious to it. But people retain a level of confidence that it can be fixed. And if you're looking for a tiny glimmer of hope in the U.S. context, I think that's probably the best you're going to get. Looking at it from the other direction, I would say that your analysis leads you to the conclusion that the propensity for violence increases significantly. And when people feel they're impeded or they're denied something, they're much faster to resort to violence when that level of trust is eroded. And it's not just here. I mean, as time has gone on and this pandemic has stretched beyond the length of any previous pandemic and the costs have accumulated and the like, we're just seeing bursts of significant violence appearing. And I think it's tied to longevity and time. It's tied to the collapse of trust in these factors that you talked about. And I'm not sure that policymakers have sort of tied those pieces together either in terms of recognizing this most recent episode with the convoys, which didn't turn very violent, but it was very illuminating to watch that, to see that what looked like a protest by a couple of hundred truckers hijacked or perhaps allied with some extremists very quickly morphed into an expression of a very deep and wide-ranging dissatisfaction in Canadian and American society. And the surveys were showing this sort of astonishing support in the early phase for the disruption of the capital of a, of a country. To me, it was another signal of the deep dissatisfaction and lack of trust that people were willing to stand by this, even while it didn't make a lot of sense sometimes. A couple of things there. I, to me, the strong correlation globally 
in levels of interpersonal trust and economic inequality. And corruption suggests that irrespective of the particular focus of those protests or broader dissatisfaction, whatever is attracting it that day, the underlying forces that spur that dissatisfaction are real and understandable. Whether their particular expression on any individual problem is or not, the underlying forces of that alienation make sense. I will say what our study suggests is that rebuilding trust is not just a matter of having us all get along. It's a matter of our safety. And that has had its expression in this pandemic. And as you've rightly said, whether you look at traffic accidents or levels of violence or different indicators, it's having its expression. It is cracking through, leaking through many different aspects of our society. And hopefully people start to take notice because, again, I think there are short-term strategies of how we adjust to that level of distrust, but there is the long-term agenda and we can't ignore it. Tom, we end each one of these episodes asking our guests to tell us what gives you hope and optimism in this period. I think what gives hope and optimism in this period is that the acknowledgement of these problems, the fact that we're having them emerge you know, at a conference like this, these are all opportunities for us to do better. And as bad as this crisis has been, a future crisis could be much, much worse. And you know, I wouldn't be in this line of work, I know you wouldn't be in this line of work either, if we didn't think that with leadership and appropriate prioritization, we couldn't do better. I think we can do better, and I remain optimistic every day that we will. Thanks so much. It's been great being together today. My great pleasure. Always good to talk to you, Steve. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.